Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to Critical Witness. Uh, My name's Phil. Got Dan and our guest to introduce in a moment with us tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about atheism and conversions to Christianity. Um, feel free to share this around and uh, like and subscribe to the channel. Um, let us know if you've got any questions for us or our guest tonight, um, and we'll be interacting with the comments and asking those questions. And um, yeah, let us know that you're watching. It'll be great to let us know um, that people are listening. Um, so without too much further ado, I'll get uh, Dan and our guest, Jana Harmon. I think I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> I should have checked before we went live. Um, welcome to the show, uh, and thanks for coming on. Um, Jono, just hand over to you, really. Who are you? What do you What do? You do? And uh, we'll kind of go from, from there. So over to you. My name is Jana Harmon. Uh, it's interesting. I, I was in the, when I did my, my work over in England at the University of Birmingham, they called me Yana. So I answered to just about anything. <laughs> but I am from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm married 25 years, have two grown daughters while well, they're in college. So they consider themselves grown and two golden retrievers. And I work with the C.S. Lewis Institute here in Atlanta. I've been with them since 2008, after I graduated with a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola. Um, I I began with the C.S. Lewis Institute, which um, is really bent towards spiritual formation and apologetics, and have been working as a teaching fellow for them since that time. And then... In 2013, I entered into a PhD program at the University of Birmingham in the UK in religion and theology to investigate atheist conversions to Christianity. And I graduated from there last, officially last year, well, actually now two years, 2019. So um, I'm just doing some teaching and writing since that time and speaking cool and was there something specific that led you into interviewing uh people and and looking at sort of atheism and and deconversion for for the stuff you're doing at the moment or is that a side project with your teaching or what, what what took you that that route well I, yeah, with my teaching, I'm, I'm also an adjunct professor at, at Biola teaching cultural apologetics. So I'm very interested in ideas of culture, how culture perceives Christianity, how uh, those really inside and outside Christianity perceive it. Um, the, the, the idea or the interest in atheism really came up because after graduating uh, in Christian apologetics quite a long time ago, um, I I became very interested in the discussion, particularly between 
naturalism and Christianity, because usually when we look at worldview and, and discussion of ideas and history and evidence and logic, usually the juxtaposition is between naturalism, atheism, and, and a theistic point of view. But over the years, I began to see that although there was a lot of discussion, debate, writing, and there seemed to be a good sense of rational evidence, or I guess you could say there was a lot of confidence in both sides from both perspectives. Despite the ongoing debates and discussions and writings, I saw very little movement or even conciliation between one side and another. It just seemed like two points of view that just continued to pass in the night. At the same time, I was reading a good bit of Francis Schaeffer and Blaise Pascal and gained a bit more appreciation, I guess you could say, for, and Lewis, of course, for not only the rational way that we perceive our beliefs and how we come to our beliefs, but there are other players involved, like our passions and our will. And I thought, you know, I wonder if I could take a look at what's going on with belief, belief formation and change hmm. uh, more than just on a rational level, because it seemed to be, there seemed to be a lot more going on than that. So when I entered into my program, I knew I wanted to take a more holistic look at belief, belief formation and change. But it really, you know, um, in any doctoral program, you focus down on a particular question and for me, because the question in the back of my mind was always, well, what would it take for someone to, to change their, that perspective so dramatically? What would it take an atheist to become a Christian? Um, what did it take? You know, and so I wanted to take a look at it very holistically as well as very practically. Uh, I didn't want to stay just in the realm of ideas. So I... I want I I um, I, <laughs> I jumped into the deep end, really uh, wanting to take a look at at many different influences of belief and belief formation and change, ranging from sociocultural influences, how someone grew up, uh, what what were what was their cultural uh, setting as it were was there religion in their cultural setting was it completely absent was there any exposure to god religion things like that at all i wanted to look at their family of origin you know did their family have any ideas experiences thoughts uh, practices with regard to religion at all christianity and specifically um, I wanted to look at experiences in their lives, you know, negative, positively, you know, our experiences definitely form and inform our beliefs. Why, if we believe something to be good or bad based upon our experience, our experiences in life, our experiences with people, our experiences in our own family, um, with religious people, what things seem to attract and repulse people from uh, their experiences with God and faith and religion. Of course, there are those um, other things that come to play, you know, our education, um, our moral sensibilities, the thing we, things we like, the people we like. We usually like the ideas of the people we like, you know, the people we hang with, our, our social influences. 
so there were there as well as spirit, spiritually speaking i wanted to know if there were any spiritual experiences or sensibilities in their lives um, if did that have any influence in their beliefs for and against or away from god and i i really took a very holistic look i i really to be honest bit that's, really broad. <laughs> that's, a, that's, um, a, that's a really broad look and i, yeah. I think a lot of um I think we sense often forget how complex people are. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. sort of expect these yeah. expect this sort of jump ship, and I, I guess in in many ways people would say, "Well, it's the Holy Spirit that converts people," but um, it's still a significant shift in thinking to to try and shift from your belief system and your experiences, especially if there's negative stuff. So, I'd be in, interested before we kind of really dig in and i, I didn't uh, i'd like to mention before we start uh really d dig in as well just to emphasize the logo behind you there the side b podcast highly recommend it do uh those of you listening do go and subscribe have a listen um dan's on there as well or he will be at some point or a some something happened with his audio it leaked or something you might be able to find it so um it is there i highly recommend it um be before we go into sort of the depths of atheist conversion and, and all that you said you're sort of digging into uh all, all the big names schaefer and c.s lewis and and the sort of apologetics uh aspect of that was was there in your own sense uh is that dealing with some of your own potential doubt was atheism ever a, a thing for you uh, personally um just just interested because it sounds well, there's quite a lot of empathy coming into these interviews as well. I was just wondering, is that something that you've come from? Like, what's your, your background in relation to Christianity and atheism? Yeah, that's a good question. I was raised in a, a very conservative, evangelical, I guess you could say, but, but very legalistic um, understanding of God and faith and Christianity. Um, so it was something that I, I embraced but it was it was it was not easy it was difficult the, my understanding of god was very tainted again by legalism and by performance and so it was it was not i would say um something i really enjoyed but i i, I did due diligence to my faith as it were it wasn't until i was really in my 30s that i came to understand what we in christianity call the gospel you know, that it really wasn't about me and what I could do, but it was about Jesus and what he had done for me. And so at that point, I really found uh, the beauty of the gospel. I found the person of Christ that was so attractive to me that I didn't know before. And at that point, it, it was actually in a church that understood grace. And, and it was also a seeker-oriented church, so there were a lot of people coming and and my husband and i were leading small groups of people who were coming from all walks of life from atheism or from buddhism or or just curious they had really not thought much about god and, and issues of faith and it became very painfully clear to me very early on that i had not done due diligence in terms of really understanding my own worldview i knew that i believed the bible but I didn't have good reason to believe the Bible other than authority in my own faith. And so when I started this journey into apologetics, 
it really took me into a place where um, I, I better understood why I believed, but I understood it from a very, again, kind of a more grand, holistic, more cumulative case, as it were, um, from all of physical reality, as well as the, our own human condition. And so it, it got me thinking about, again, from a more holistic perspective, those who, who embrace the reality of God and Christ and what they have to gain, I guess you could say, in terms of not only making sense of their world intellectually, but also making sense of who they are as a person and having a, you know, a deep sense of value, meaning, dignity, you know, morality, purpose, um, that, that, that there is something pretty amazing about being grounded in this sense of unconditional love and direction in your life. Um, and so I think what you're, you might be hearing from me, this sense of empathy is really a passion for, I mean, to, you know, to be completely clear is a passion for others to know Christ. Um, because I think the Christian worldview, um, in the, my estimation, the estimation of many, is something that that makes sense of who we are in our deepest sense of self and our our need to be loved and and um, and valued and and those kinds of things that can only be found within the Christian worldview, hmm. of course, as well as other intellectual reasons. But um, yeah, there is a I guess a compassion and a passion for all who don't know that whether they are atheists or not sounds good dan mm. go on yeah no i think it would be interesting i guess it's probably be a bit difficult to give uh, a summary of your whole thesis but would you know i guess in, in you know in a few minutes like what was you know what what were the before we get into sort of the nitty-gritty i mean what were the sort of overall findings you know were there were there common themes uh throughout um you know the individual stories that you that you that you heard and recorded and sort of um you know explored in detail or you know were there was there not a common thread throughout them um i i would be quite interested to know well as you know everyone is very different and we're all individuals and we all find our way you know into our beliefs and very uh different and very unique ways. But what I will say at the outset is the basis of my thesis was really, again, taking a holistic view of religion and religious conversion as, as um, juxtaposed to the academic, uh, the naturalistic uh, dominance within academia. Um, so basically, in a nutshell, I wanted to see if people converted from atheism to Christianity just because of its functional use. That is what religion does for someone. It provides, you know, a place to belong. It provides a psychological crutch. You know, it gives some kind of positive experience. But um, within a naturalistic point of view, that's all there is to religion, other than perhaps saying it's also delusional and an illusion. You know, there's, there's nothing true about it. There's no ontological essence to God or to anything that a religious person believes. It just serves a functional purpose. My, my thesis was looking at, because atheists believe in objective 
reality and that we could know it. And Christians assert the same kinds of things, that, that there is a, an, an ontological essence to the reality of God and we can know it. That I wanted to see if belief and, and beliefs, coming to know beliefs and the intellectual, rational, and the spiritual realities had anything to do with conversion at all, or whether or not it was purely functional in nature, or, was, or whether it was a combination of both. So that being said, um, I would presume if, if the literature is correct and that religious conversion is merely a social or psychological phenomenon, that's what the, the evidence would show. And so um, through not only survey, but interview of over 50 former atheists, I got their perspectives on... Um, how they perceived and came to the belief in atheism, what opened the door or opened their, the them to the possibility of something more. I call that the catalyst. And then what brought them on to conversion and then, you know, their life since. And basically from a thesis perspective, I found that belief in atheism and coming to belief in Christianity was a very complex thing. It was a mixed bag. The first thing I would want to say is that it actually is not merely a functional thing. <laughs> you know, belief in God is people, at least in this particular demographic, the atheist. The atheist did not come to believe in God for merely functional reasons. In fact, they pushed back hard against that. Because rationality and belief and reasoned thought and evidence is very highly valued to the atheist who, among my dem demographic, were highly educated, highly thoughtful, um, critical thinkers who would refuse to embrace anything that was judged to be superstitious or fantasy or illusion. Um, they did not come to believe in God through merely functional pathways. What I will say, though, from a general perspective, is that atheists believe in atheism for both what I call substantive, that is intellectual and uh, functional reasons, you know, experiential, yeah. cultural, social. They became open in a general way. This is a general statement for more functional reasons, that is something they thought was very off-putting and not plausible and unattractive, something breached that. Like Alan Noble would say, there was a disruptive witness of some sort. Perhaps um, there was a, an unusual event, an encounter. Um, there was a, a crossing paths with something that um, broke a, a negative stereotype that they had about God or Christianity. It may have been a gradual sense of dissatisfaction in their life existentially that perhaps atheism didn't seem to satisfy in a way that it once did earlier in their lives. Like, for example, well, I can give you examples of all these things. But, yeah, please, 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 please. but, but generally speaking, yeah, the, the functional 
reasons really were prominent, although there are those who were atheists who moved to Christianity who were very clearly and very dominantly uh, pursuing either to disprove, you know, they were in the substance, they were in the rational, they were in the intellectual, they were seeking to disprove Christianity, or they, for some reason, became open and actually started looking at the evidence and um, they, they were motivated for more intellectual reasons. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, it was a combination of, of everything. And towards conversion, it really was, okay, I, this Christianity has become attractive it's in some way at some point. Now is it true? And so then they, they would typically, if they hadn't gone through an intellectual path at the catalyst, you know, starting their journey, they would at some point become very, very interested in the intellectual and rational as well as spiritual issues with regarding faith and God and Christianity. Mm. Yeah, no, it's this, this, that's it. I mean, could you give, um, you've got any particular sort of examples of, uh, of, of someone who you interviewed who went through, you know, that, you know, a uh, kind of archetypal process that you've been describing? Yeah, of course. Uh, now there are, in terms of general patterns, too, there are those who reject God uh, or faith or Christianity for different reasons. And so there are certain patterns from those different types, if you will. Like there are those who re who had a tendency well, to reject God for more emotional reasons, I guess. If, say, a traumatic event happened in their life and they couldn't understand uh, where God was or, you know, why didn't he show up? Um, there were those who rejected for more intellectual reasons. You know, this, you know I believe in science. This, 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 there's no way I can believe in God. Um, I'm too rational of a person for that. There are those who, who predominantly pushed back because they really didn't, I mean, it just wasn't in their world. It wasn't culturally relevant. It just wasn't part of their, the fabric of their life. It wasn't in their friends, their family. They wasn't talked about. It was just kind of a non-issue. Um, and then, then there were those who, um, it's interesting in terms of pushback. Well, on, on survey, I asked, what was the, the prominent reason why people, why you didn't believe in God? And although the rational was fairly prominent in terms of, you know, no scientific, philosophical, historical evidence for God. The most prominent answer was surprising to me. It was, there is no subjective evidence for God. That is, they either didn't see God in their world, it just wasn't part of their world from a rel culturally relevant perspective, or they didn't see or sense God from a more emotional perspective. You know, he didn't show up. There was an unanswered prayer, that kind of thing. And then I could probably give you examples from all of those things in terms of, because say, for example, the, the emotional, the first person I, I interviewed was a guy who's actually the first guy on a story on my podcast. My podcast is really, um, it is, it is the story. Each, each podcast, a former atheist tells his story of why he or he or she embraced atheism and what, what made them more open and brought them onto faith in Christianity. And this first guy was the, his name is Mike Arnold, and you can find him on the first podcast. But 
he was the first person I met with, and uh, and with his uh, with his survey, it was obvious that something had happened to him when he was young, because he said he'd become an atheist at age seven. And when you listen to his story, it was extremely traumatic. When he was age seven, you know, he had been going to Sunday school and believed that Jesus loved him. But at age seven, he was in a home that caught on fire due to an electrical problem. And he lost two of his brothers. It was an extremely traumatic event for him. And, and after, after that happened, he just couldn't have anything to do with God. I mean, in his little mind, God and belief in God was not even an option. He, even though it was kind of birthed from an emotional event or, or a traumatic and tragic event, um, his, his disbelief got almost wrapped up like an armor in, in, in intellectual reasons not to believe. So he had a very uh, anti-theist uh, perspective. He called himself an evangelical atheist. He was so antagonistic to Christians and God and Christianity that he wouldn't even go into church for a wedding or a funeral at great social cost. He just really didn't care. Okay. So, you know, when someone has that much pain and then he was a very bright individual. So finding arguments against God was not hard for him to do. And he, he persisted in that kind of antagonism and anger really until he was 26 and his wife became a Christian and that just fueled his anger even more. And so he, at one point went over to the home of the, of the people who had led her to believe in Christianity. And he came in kind of ready, ready to fight verbally at least. And he was so angry and thought that they would be antagonistic towards him as well. And what he found, what were, uh, the, it was the very opposite of what he expected. They invited him in to sit down with, at a cup of tea, and they essentially just welcomed him in to their home and valued him and talked with him. And I think because of um, his his pain and anger that he had carried with him carried with him for so many years, he wasn't a very approachable person. And to sit and have two people who welcome you and value you. In his interview, he said, "You know, I it, they made me feel like I was human, and that was that was very unexpected, disarming. Again, he had a negative stereotype built up as to who he believed that they were, and they were nothing like he expected. Hmm. And he he it was so inviting to him to feel so valued that he kept coming night after night just to have a cup of tea." And then he never brought up, you know, conversations about God or anything until he did, until he was ready. And then he started, you know, wanting to, to shoot down the idea of the rationality of God and belief in God. And this went on for weeks and weeks and months until he ran out of argument, essentially. Hmm. And, uh, and at, at some point he, would, he prayed and was prayed over and received peace like he had never known. Wow. And that was, again, he thought it would it would leave, and it, it just didn't. And it became so much. Again, he he believed for it. He, he, it's not like he just believed because two people accepted him as a human. 
he actually went through a very strong intellectual exercise um, to come to a place where he actually could believe. And what's amazing about his story is that then he actually became a minister to people in a little English community where he goes and he ministers to people who are hurt and broken, who suffer pain and um, who also have questions. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was interesting, you know, someone who, who has a lot of pain and hurt in their life. And this was not only true for Mike, it was true for others as well. Who um, I could give you stories of, of people who had alcoholic parents, who had yeah. absent or abusive parents, um, who, who had a very negative view of God because of their negative view of their own home experience or, or their own earthly father. How can they yeah. trust a heavenly father? There was a, such a breach of trust that it's hard to trust in, especially, you know, some God you can't even see who's supposed to be good. So, but, but consistently in those stories, you find somehow uh, a healing of sorts or that love actually, <laughs> love actually plays a very, very strong part in those stories. Um, so that's one example of one kind of atheism. Uh, go on phil yeah and no, i was just sort of build on that really with it i mean it's quite a biblical that they'll know us by our love <laughs> but it's, it's amazing how many will testify that they've been hurt by the church and that uh, i'd be interested in how many of those that do leave the church are generally because they felt the opposite of that they've come to know that the church should be loved but they feel everything but um, and just kind of on, on that note, really, just, uh, I guess the question is, is a general trend from from um, a friend of the channel, 136 Apologetics. Do follow him uh, if if uh, you haven't yet. So um, he says, did Jana find that the majority of the Christians she interviewed come to Christianity via a relationship with a believer? Or was it more due to personal investigation? So that, that story of Mike's was very much a uh, believer. And the what... I've listened to a couple and, and they seem to be similar, at least one of the, the ones that most recently came out was very similar. Um, that he was sort of forced to sit next to someone on a bus and he just happened to um, ha have to have that conversation. And it was someone that was both loving, but also able to answer questions, but also honest enough to say when he didn't know the answers. So just, is that a general trend that the personal investigation includes a believer or is it, how, were there many that was literally they just looked at the evidence and and came to believe that is a fantastic question and i love the story that you brought up phil about um frank federico that's right. yeah that's right yeah um, he was he, i mean religion and god was not even on the radar for him until he met he met someone who was both a christian and taught science and he could not understand how a Christian could believe in or endorse, you know, scientific method and, you know, the things that, that science, science brings forth. And so that, again, it breached a particular presumption about Christians and Christianity. But to your question, that is a very good question. <laughs> As, um, nearly two thirds said it 
in, in as atheists, there would be nothing to change their perspective. Nothing. They, they were very highly convinced there would be nothing to change their, their pathway in the atheism. When I looked at that in terms of, okay, what did change their path? Was it an independent study? Was it something um, that they pursued independently? I will say approximately 20% pursued this journeying towards God independently without any kind of outside intervention. That is um, like one story I'm thinking of. Um, I can't really tell you his name, uh, but, uh, but he and his buddy, he was a very introspective, very, very skeptical atheist. Uh, he was one who he said he lived in his head quite a bit. And so, but there were things even about, he was, he was one who was actually willing to investigate or was skeptical of his own skepticism. He was able to and willing to look at his own atheism and see the implications of it, see whether or not atheism grounded, for example, objective morality. That was a concern for him. He had issues with he said at one point he was investigating or thinking about origins of life and he came across the fact that Francis Crick, even though, you know, he had a lot to do with the genome and DNA was willing to say that we don't have the capacity in our natural world to have um, to account for the origin of life, that he was willing to embrace the idea that aliens might have, you know, planted the first life on earth and, and that really caused disconcertion. So for he and his roommate actually began looking more closely at these ideas and was recommended to look at, there was, there used to be an old show hosted by Lee Strobel called Faith Under Fire, you know, where they would bring on worldviews that were juxtaposed. And so for him, that, that took him to other resources and looking at, you know, the depth of Christian writing and watching William Lane Craig debates and different things like that. And so he, he actually came to a decision on his own. Um, and, and that happened more than once with other people who just got curious and started listening to debates. I mean, technology is, is incredible, but there has to be a sense of willingness as it were, intellectual curiosity, skepticism of their own skepticism, perhaps even to disprove Christianity on their own. Um, they move through these intellectual into, uh, movements and um, most, you know, by themselves sometimes, but that is the minority. What I found, um, and, I, and I addressed it and asked it on more than one occasion, whether I looked at it through their interviews or I asked it on survey, did a believer or did someone interrupt your life in some way to cause a change of, of direction or perspective? And around 80, 82, 89%, it was the dominant um, thing that someone encountered the unexpected and embodied authentic, perhaps intelligent Christian that they had not thought was possible. Um, so yes, I would say that because there is this us them mentality, 
between non-believers, particularly atheists and religious believers. There's a study that was done in 2014 of where agnostics and atheists keep a social distance from different people in society. Uh, and it, it showed that agnostic atheists socially distance the most from religiously devout or quote unquote threatening people. And so you think about that, if there's very little encountering, then there's oftentimes an us them mentality develop. Mm -hmm. And so negative caricatures are going to develop. You're gonna, you're gonna have a lot of presumptions about the other, whether it's Christians towards atheists or the non-believer or the non-believer towards Christians or evangelicals, that you think that, you know, again, in my study, uh, I asked what, what everyone in the study as atheists thought about Christians and God and Christianity. And it was extremely painted with a very negative hue that Christians were uneducated, intolerant, you know, all, all of these things that um, hate-filled, bigoted. Um, you, if there was a negative adjective, it was probably that box was ticked. And then when you meet someone that counters those things, like when Frank met his friend on the bus, David, that he countered those presumptions. And so then it causes, he, he said that first conversation on the bus with him, with this nice, cordial, intelligent Christian that he didn't think possible, he said it didn't really change his perspective. What it did was, he said it was the door opener, or it was the, the moment at which he became curious or open towards perhaps saying that there, there was something more or different. Yeah. I, I liked, it was interesting you talking about how um, you know, uh, atheists, you know, certain groups are more likely to distance themselves from uh, religious believers. It almost takes a, it's almost like, it made me thought of like, kind of maybe it's my own sort of, um, sort of experience, but like almost viewing religious people as a kind of pathogen that's to be avoided. You know, like, you know, yeah. because, you know, when you, and it kind of makes sense if you, through the framework of someone like Richard Dawkins, who refer, you know, the God delusion, yeah. you know, that uh, framing religious belief as a, as, as a pathogen, that's something that you, you want to avoid. Yeah. Um, and so I guess if you, if you do accept that framework, even, even tacitly, you wouldn't necessarily, maybe you might not explicitly think, you know, you might not especially um, think of, a religion as a pathogen but you can see how it's kind of if you've accepted that framework that you can live it out uh in in, in that way so it's quite interesting to see um th that that view sort of merge and, and result in um you know social uh, uh change in social behavior mm -hmm. yeah again you know i have a, a keen interest in culture and it and it Unfortunately, you know, there's a there's a very acute marginalization of Christianity and culture, as like you say, something bad. It's not just coming from Richard Dawkins. It's coming from television and social media, and it's coming from the arts and film. It's it's coming from education. It's it's coming from a lot of different sources. So the Christian is really. Um, you know, unless uh, someone in my study said, unless you actually encounter or cross paths with a Christian, what kind of messaging 
is there? You know, it's it's very very negative. Um, there there, and I had mentioned this on Unbelievable. There was a uh, a guy in my study. He, Christianity wasn't in his world at all, and I mean, the only impression he got about Christians were, you know, he thought, you know, the the um, kind of perverted priest on some kind of show, yeah. or um, there, the the Ned Flanders on The Simpsons, you know, goody goody two shoes, who everybody loves to hate, you know, these cultural messages that you know I heard this over and over. I thought. Christians were just, you know, pink haired or they're just after your money or they're, you know, they're weird, they're strange, they're odd, they're, you know, social rejects, you know, um, so many different perceptions. And a lot of it is, again, from a distance. It's what what's we it's, it's in the water, unfortunately, now. So unless there is some direct um, engagement or, or paths crossing, um, it, it's really hard to um, reduce those or counter those negative, negative stereotypes in order to build plausibility of what Christianity is. Um, but that, in a sense, is our, it's our job. It's our role. Mm. Not to sit back, but actually to engage, um, to counter those ne- uh, negative images and paradigms and mantras, really. And, and unfortunately, it's not that all... You know, part of the study, too, was that people had encountered Christians. You know, I think Jay John says, you know, I don't believe in Christianity because I, I, I've met a Christian or I haven't met a Christian. Right. So sometimes uh, impressions of Christianity, the negative ones are for good reason. Mm-hmm. And because <laughs> it seemed like that those atheists in my study or former atheists who had encountered Christians weren't able to speak very intelligently about their worldview couldn't speak very intelligently about philosophy or science, um, couldn't answer the hard questions. You know, perhaps they were, you know, 50% rejected Christianity because of the what they observed um, in hypocrisy, you know, whether it be from, you know, the leaders or, or just generally people that they had encountered where it seemed that they called themselves Christians, but it didn't seem to make any difference in their lives. So we certainly... Uh, I'm not saying we're not guilty. <laughs> mm-hmm. we're guilty of of putting out a bad impression for many, you know, and the, the disbelief people have, as you say, Phil, been genuinely hurt by Christians and people in the name of the church and people in the name of Christianity. Um, and and it's I just I just want to apologize for that. Mm-hmm. You want to apologize, but you also. There was also another young man who said, you know, sometimes, and I think Phil and I, you and I were talking about this, the value of story. We're all embracing some kind of a story. Mm-hmm. And there is a Christian story. There's a vision of the God story that we are living and we're embodying and we're projecting. And the, the challenges for Christians is to embody, embrace and embody a vision of reality and of living and of life that is good, <laughs> that's attractive, that someone um, wants to to say, "Hey, that that looks good to me." Um, sometimes mm-hmm. that does happen, uh, but it's important that that we embody and live in front of and with other 
Hi there, this is Phil Dunkarf. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe, share the episode and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. story about that <laughs> yeah no go for it yeah yeah definitely uh, just just before you do I, I think I'd just be wanting to sort of emphasize that a little a bit more I actually wrote the question down are Christians being marginalized or are they marginalizing themselves and uh, there, there is I mean <laughs> for various reasons over the last couple of years we've definitely seen a, a particular flavor of Christianity pop up um that's got sort of merged with politics and with uh certain political parties in in the states and while being in the in the uk while the politics don't necessarily come into play in the uk as much the the that flavor of christianity does and how we make um policy and activism and all that aspect of of life which isn't wrong for a christian to be involved in but it becomes the thing that the christian becomes known by um and so yeah just be sort of emphasizing that that while we we shouldn't have to apologize for our fellow christians there's an aspect that we want to potentially um distance ourselves that i want to no i'm not like them <laughs> i'm not i'm not right. those, those guys mm-hmm. or um so there's a, there's an aspect to that but I, I think you kind of touched on it right at the start about this idea of your uh legalistic idea of christianity and then working out there's this grace-filled christianity of her knowing who jesus is loving jesus for jesus's sake not because of a duty but because of what he's done for you and i sort of want to point back to that as and there was a question in the chat just to clarify and, and I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this of what, what do you mean by legalism and mm-hmm. how much of uh, those who had left christianity for a period of time or left it into atheism how much mm-hmm. do you think that aspect of christianity that was very much about uh, the I've started using the phrase moralistic Christianity. It's all about the rules, all about the the morals, that sin is just a moral code that you've broken. Um, how how much of that do you think comes into play? And then when they come back to Christianity, how much is that uh, they've actually met Jesus potentially uh, for the first time, I guess? That, that, so a couple of questions in there. What's legalism and uh, how much does that come into play for, for people leaving the faith, I guess? Yeah, yeah, I would say um, I'm not an expert on legalism from, a, I guess, an academic perspective, I guess, more experiential mm-hmm. uh, from from my experience. And they were and just so you know, from those who were in my study, there were very, very few um, Christians in my study who who embraced some kind of real faith before they left it. If they did embrace their faith, I mean, um, 
there were 18% or so or 25% or so who had some kind of a ritualistic, I guess you could call that legalistic, you know, where they would go to the church, go through, um, be catechized or go through communion or, you know, go to the mass or the service and really not know why they were there. Um, really get nothing out of it. See how nothing uh, changed in their, their lives or their family. It was like a box you checked. It had nothing to do with real faith. Okay. In my, and, and that's a form of legalism that, that really didn't um, kind of scratch the surface below, you mm -hmm. know, particular outward appearance of religion. Um, the legalism that I was familiar with was probably, um, it, it was more of a very, what they call a works oriented kind of belief where you had to jump through so many hoops in order to be accepted by God. And if you, if you, you know, crossed every T and dotted every I and you, and you didn't do, you know, every little thing, then perhaps maybe at the end of the day, um, you know, God will accept you. It, it, it almost sounds like a karmic or not karmic, but you know, it, almost. Um, the sensibility that, you know, if you earn your way, Mm. God's acceptance, um, you know, maybe he will, maybe he will accept you. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's, it's um, the onus of salvation and be accepted, being acceptable towards God and being considered righteous is all on your own effort. So that's how I would explain legalism. I think Tim Keller sort of, he, 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 he I think I've heard him sort of distinguish between the two. So, you know, the, the, the true gospel is um, you are loved, so you obey. Whereas mm -hmm. the legalistic gospel is you obey so that you are loved. Um, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it flip flips it on, flips it on its, on it, on its head. So I think that's quite a, that's how I always sort of understand. That's um, why we love Keller. That's why we love Keller. <laughs> and um, yeah. And, and, and the legalistic gospel and, and, and the gospel. Yeah, I, I believe that that is a perfect way to phrase it. Um, the, uh, yeah, I can't take credit for it, as I said. Um, uh, one thing that would be interesting, just, just it came to my mind a, a, a minute ago when you were talking, is the um, how many women did you interview? Because an uh, interesting sort of demographic. Like I, I haven't, I haven't you know, looked at your, um, your, your thesis, but I'd be interested to know like, what was – did you encounter far more men who uh, had this sort of experience of, uh, of of being atheists who later became Christians, uh, or you know, I'd just be interested in sort of demographics, basically. Yeah, well, from a very basic demographic perspective, at large, you know, even globally, the the number of atheists, uh, men versus women, is approximately two thirds men versus one third women. Although the number of women are growing. I think because of the number of, that are growing in the younger generations. But in terms of my study, uh, we did have I did I did have a vast, uh, vastly more men than I did have have women. It was an 80-20 split. So I had forty men and ten women. So, so was there any difference then? So like, because um, I'd be interested now because we talked about some of the the common threads and stories between them. Were there were there different themes? Uh, between the women and the men, or were there were there far more things in common? I would say that the women. It's interesting. The you think about a woman who's an atheist. Why would a woman be an atheist if they're? Um, hmm. 
Well, <laughs> I need to be very careful here. Um, so let go say this. <laughs> the, the women, I will say that the women who are atheists in my study were, were, uh, I, I'm trying to think of the number of them that had PhDs, quite a number of them. Very thoughtful, very intelligent. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't say that they were driven towards atheism because of for emotional reasons, although um, like Carolyn Weber, who's, whose podcast has been on, she spoke of, um, you know, her father being absent in her life and that she couldn't trust a heavenly father, but she was also, I mean, she's an Oxford woman. <laughs> she's a, she's a PhD and, and she's very astute and intellectual. So even though that was a part of her story, she thought about things. I mean, she was a critical thinker. She was a contemplative. So the women in my study, um, really embraced uh, the intellectual part of themselves. I would say for the most part, the, uh, the, although there were a couple, actually the most, uh, I guess I can be kind, the least intellectual person in my study was a, was a female, I would say. That in, uh, according to why she embraced atheism and why she embraced faith was a very community culturally driven belief. She was kind of, moved along the flow of wherever she was and the people she was with. But for the most part, um, this whole, I mean, the name of my PhD is, is Educated Atheist because this is a very bright group of, of, of um, former atheists. Um, and I, and I, I think that it's, it's interesting because my examiner was an atheist and um, and, and he really wanted me to narrow the generalization of my study because, because of the intellectually driven nature of it. But I think from an apologetic perspective, I think it speaks to the credibility of the Christian worldview. If these, these highly educated atheists who were more educated than the normal demographic um, of atheists, forty um, percent have had graduate degrees. Um, so it was a they were very thoughtful, not to be duped by religious superstition kind of people. So for them to turn and move towards Christianity, that thing that they thought that only uneducated people believed. In fact, not one person thought Christians were educated people. That was a problem. <laughs> that was a a startling find in my study when people looked at Christians, they would say, oh, they're not educated. Um, Interesting. Then these educated people became Christians. Uh, they were male or female. They were, they were both a very educated group. I do wonder where, the, where that side of things comes from, because it's not like there's a short supply of intellectuals who are christian who have been engaging with philosophy and uh, well from its inception really since its foundation uh and and so so even paul was engaging with the the poets and philosophers of his day um so it's not like in there's a anti-intellectual well there, there must be an anti-intellectual side to christianity for that to kind of be what 
they see about Christians, I guess. And and I know that's pro- probably um, pushed by certain aspects of society. Um, but it would be... But that's the yeah, case yeah. for us, though. Even we would we would accept that. Yeah. Like, because... You know the the um, you know the sort of intellectual side of Christianity, even within Christianity, is itself a minority sort of in group. You know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, even you know, most people who have an interest in sort of apologetics and philosophy struggle. You know, myself struggle to find people maybe at your local level who have mm-hmm. any any sort of interest or ascribe any sort of value to um, to, to to those kinds of things. So, you know, it. it it's no wonder that people outside of the church think that's the case when even when you're in it, it's very difficult unless, you know, um, you know, how many Christians, if you said, if you could name your top 10, uh, you know, other than probably C.S. Lewis, I reckon, you know, the percentage of people that have heard of Francis Schaeffer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people heard of William Lane Craig, um, maybe it depends you know it depends if, if, if you include someone like nt right you know probably you get a few more pe- people then but um you know alvin plantinga you know no you know i, I reckon yeah. less than one percent of christian less than probably half percent of christians have ever heard of, 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 of a lot of those people um and so i think if unless someone wants to offer pushback from that it's no wonder that that's the case for um you know for people outside the church um you, know, you have to work very hard. I always use the the, the example of, of a Christian bookshop. You know, that is a sort of microcosm of, mm. of the Christian world. And if you go yeah, into a Christian bookshop, 90, <laughs> 95% of it is nonsense. At least the stuff that's on the, you know, often on the front. Mm. Uh, the stuff, you know. Um, and and so that's, what's, that's what people see. You know, the chances of you, a non-Christian, going to a Christian bookshop and find something stimulating or interesting um unless that you know they go to the actual bible section is often quite quite low i would say even the bibles though <laughs> you have to some of the like the the appeal to different audiences with the and I, i've seen some of the stuff in uh, even apologetics bibles and uh things like that can be quite fluffy can be here's an answer almost as an answer as a tick tick box exercise in itself don't wrestle with scriptures have an answer for everything and uh, and so yeah i think that's that that is a a, le- uh, a criticism that can be leveled at apologetics in in some circles is this idea of not wanting to wrestle with things not wanting to not have the answer i have to win in the argument win the debate and um only even when we started this channel most of our the people we interviewed were men so it's quite interesting that that's kind of how you found your your interviews um and uh where women come into to the conversation and how, how that works out is quite interesting um i can i just kind of just thinking about what you're saying here i unfortunately i think it's often the case whether atheist or christian or or whomever that many people I would venture to say most aren't terribly thoughtful about the grounding of their own worldview and thinking. So I think it's not just Christians or it's actually, I mean, there were several atheists in my study or former atheists who said, you know, I thought that I had actually looked or thought about my own worldview as an atheist, but in hindsight, I really hadn't given it a lot of thought. Mm. One of the questions that I asked in my study, because, you know, when you're, um, 
when you understand philosophy and the grounding of worldview and, and where worldview, you know, ideas have consequences and what are the implications of those, you know, ideas, uh, there, there, there weren't, I mean, there were some who had actually considered the implications of their own atheism, but many hadn't really considered them very deeply. You know, it was just kind of part of the package and they hadn't really thought about, except for like the, the young man that I mentioned earlier that, you know, he was disturbed by the fact that he couldn't, you know, moral relativism was unpalatable, unpalatable to him. It, it was, it was unlivable. He couldn't solve that, you know, so that he understood what it was because he was willing to look there. Um, but there were, Again, it's kind of across the board of humanity, you know, again, in culture, we're so distracted and we're so, uh, <laughs> you know, we're so on to something else, you know, we're not really sitting back until maybe some big event or some disruptive witness or something comes into our lives where we go, whoa, what, what is going on here? Yeah. Like, for example, there is a, one, one of the most compelling stories I think in my in my work was a young man who who went to college and found the I think you know it was when the internet was getting going and he found um oh goodness I'm, I'm blank now freedom from foundation Dan Barker oh yeah, yeah. And he found he found a home you know he found his home and <laughs> so then he embraced you know everything antagonistic to faith he found his atheism. He was, he had a very strong sense of intellectual superiority with it. He loved the moral freedom that that brought. He said, I could write a moral blank check, so to speak. You know, I could live however I wanted. I mean, he really understood what atheism was and it, he understood what atheism allowed. Hmm. Um, and, it, and it wasn't until he was in his 30s. And he was actually married to a Christian and from a Christian family. And he began to, to feel the existential angst of his own worldview. You know, he understood it. He thought about it. He knew that there was no objective purpose or meaning. Hmm. You know, he said he felt like his life was just, you know, building a sandcastle and then the, the, the wave would come, you know, wipe it away overnight. And then, you know, what was it all for? Um, so he like so so he began to actually reconsider his own worldview and what it wasn't able to bring for him, and mm -hmm. he would see his family, his wife and his family who had a very simple kind of existence, but they were joy filled. They had purpose and meaning, and they had community, and they were kind and loving and he said and i think this is probably one of the most telling it was one of the most transparent interviews i had he said i understood the depravity of who i was becoming because of the choices i was allowed to make as an atheist um he said i i came to a point where i actually saw who i was becoming and he didn't like it you know um so there's this thoughtfulness for some and there's not for others you know there there are many who are just what i would consider happy atheists mm -hmm. you know who really they don't need god and you know 
like Guillaume Bignon mm. uh, is a perfect example of that. I just, and there were several in my study, you know, just no need for God. Why would I believe in God? You know, I, he, he was very bright, but, um, and had everything going for him, but I don't think he was like this real contemplative atheist. I think, yeah, we're all different people. We all think deeply or more superficially about our lives, you know. That's, that's I like your use of the catalyst, like when you, like you need, you, I think often speaking very generally for, you know, people in, in the UK is that, that Christianity is not seen as a, as a plausible um, worldview or alternative to right. the sort of inherited agnosticism, atheism that, that, that most people sort of accept. And because it's rarely, it's, it's very rarely challenged. So you end up with quite unrefined beliefs. And I think that I had, like you have, you, you carry these assumptions about things you've been not, even not necessarily taught. You've just, you've absorbed these beliefs, beliefs that, um, that God likely doesn't exist. Um, it's unnecessary. You know, there are, you know, what about all this suffering and evil? Surely, you know, God can't exist. Where is he? You know, so we won't, we won't call it divine hiddenness, but we would, you know, we would couch it in those sorts of, of, of terms, you know, where is God, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you need, and, and, and the thing is you end up with beliefs that, Actually, if you if you challenge them or push back, there's very little depth to those to those beliefs because they're not they're not informed beliefs. They're kind of informed assumptions. Mm-hmm. And so, once you have I, 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 listening to what you're saying, I think w- what happens. I think a lot of Christians are afraid to do evangelism because they think what it requires them to do is have all the answers to all the questions. And I think apologetics. Um, uh, can come across in a way that, it, that, that, that the Christians that that kind of appreciate the the mind, um, you know, and, and, and being informed in the kind of intellectual depth of Christianity. Yeah, you know, I don't think they do it intentionally, but you kind of think to do evangelism, you have to have all the answers. Whereas actually, to be it, to be an effective catalyst, you don't actually need to have all the answers. You just need to not be, you know, really just quite low bar. Don't be a hypocrite. Uh, you know. Uh, obviously don't yeah. be horrible and don't be a weirdo i mean weirdo in the most negative sense I don't yeah. mean, I'm, you know, or at I'm, least I'm, accept I'm, your weirdness yeah 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 like, I, 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 I'm, like, I'm a bit eccentric but you know I, you know not you know and that's quite a low bar like if just if someone just knows you're a christian like because that's that's odd you know especially in the uk obviously not so much in the us you know i'm sure there are certain parts of the us where that would be that would be odd yeah. um but just just someone knowing you're a Christian, like it can, can like you've said from your stories and you know, my own as well, is, is being a catalyst. You don't have to have all the answers. And I think actually there's something quite comforting about that for Christians. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that the nature of, uh, you know, us Christians who appreciate apologetics have to be very careful about, um, we can often discourage people from doing evangelism. So, oh, if you just, if you just read reasonable faith and, and you, you know, you do, right. you know, you, you do that, then, then, then you, you know, then you'll be, then you'll be ready and equipped to go and share the gospel. You don't know. No, no, no. The gospel is very simple. Um, that Jesus doesn't require you to be a philosopher. And I, I think we, um, uh, you know, just have to, just to, to be very careful. I think apologies is, is, is sometimes guilty of, of framing evangelism in a way, um, actually often puts people off 
uh, and and discourages them from being being themselves in, in, in a way. There you go. Craig agrees. Embrace your weirdness. <laughs> I think that's so true. I think there's there's so much in in what you were saying with uh, needing a catalyst for even for Christians though to need a catalyst to re-examine their faith. And I've seen that in a, a few friends when life gets messy, it shakes their faith to the extent they they either leave it or they recognise that actually Jesus wasn't their centre, he wasn't the one that they're pointing their life around and um, recognising that they love Jesus for who, as we've already said, the sort of legalism and the duty and the, the community aspects are often quite a comfort, but that's not the whole story of the gospel. And it, it needs a, a catalyst to shape those things that we find comfortable to recognise that, okay, is Jesus really what I've built my life on? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and is he worth building my life on is, is the question that, that any Christian needs to ask. And I think once once a Christian has gone through that catalyst themselves, they're more likely to evangelize more confidently because it becomes good news to them, mm. not just something they feel they have to share. Again, evangelism and apologetics become a duty and an idol in themselves, how many books I can read and how much I know, uh, rather than why <laughs> why would I share this? Why, why do I love Jesus? Why? Has he changed my life? And, uh, and and the knowledge of that that comfort of from Christ, not the comfort of the stuff that we might get as part of a community. Um, there's there's I, a sorry, go on, Dan. Now I was going to say, like, what what I'm interested in, like, what what do you think the the, the value of these stories is? So you obviously mm. you 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 studied these, uh, you know, you've ident- identified certain themes and um, you know in, in these in these in these stories but what 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 do you what, what do you think what you know what have what's the value in these stories and especially in like why why would christians be interested in hearing these stories and what what can we learn from them i guess in a way yeah um i think the value for christians would be the same as the value it was for me and that is first of all to know that even though people seem so far away from God that there really is no one too far away from the reach of God um, towards life change. Uh, I, I think it's easy somehow and sometimes just to write people off or think that that, you know, to be discouraged that, that hearts can never change, but that's not true. Um, because, you know, I think going into my study, I was a little discouraged because I was convinced that the Christian worldview had the best, it made, made best sense of reality, you know, and at every turn, but there was still so much obstinance against. And I thought, well, who will turn? Who, who will actually embrace um, God? But anyway, um, I was encouraged to see that not only can walls be broken down and hearts, you know, become open, but, but that God uses people uh, uses Christians, as you were saying, even, and the, the bar doesn't have to be high, as you said, it's just God uses people, Christians to engage with, to interact with, to show 
uh, something different to lead people to Christ, to what's true and what's real and what's good and beautiful. And, and I think, so it's encouraging from that perspective to know that we actually can play a part, that hearts can be changed. But I think one of the most amazing things about these stories, for me anyway, was to see as strong as the disbelief was in the atheist, they have just as strong, if not stronger, belief in Christ. These are the, some of the most vibrant followers of Christ. It's, it's in terms of a demographic, in terms of a subset of, of the Christian church, this, 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 these group of people are just amazing in what they have. They're so convinced and so transformed. And like you say, they are very evangelistic. They're highly, again, intelligent and philosophical and moving and shaking in, in different worlds, whether it be the academy, whether it be, um, you know, at the university, whether it be in ministry, whether it be in their own lives. Um, the, the move from what they would consider darkness to light is just almost infectious and it's inspiring um, for Christians. I think sometimes as Christians, especially if you've been born into it and as part of your narrative, it's the story you've known, there's nothing special about it to you. Well, it's, it's incredibly special for someone who actually finds it and, and has found life that is truly life in Christ. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's extraordinary. I think also, if I could say one more thing for the Christian, mm. if you listen to these stories, if you're wondering what will help turn like someone who has been emotionally rejected or, or someone who has suffered so, or someone who's very intellectual and, and, and really is looking how to, you know, understand different things in life, uh, all of these different stories have different emphases, but but you can see how if you watch their journeys and you look for the catalyst, you can be informed and you can see how um, lives were turned in a direction towards God and how it was turned out, what God used, who God used, how he did it. Because at the end of the day, apologetics, yes, is about knowledge and all of that but it really at the uh, at the end of the day is it's about bringing lives to christ and so this is a you know again it's not what what did it take you know what argument would it take or what evidence uh, but what what does what did it take you know was it love was it an embodied witness was it um leading someone to some authoritative and intelligent Christian authors and writers? Was it, you know, helping to answer their questions? Was it showing them how it fills the life, you know, full of meaning and purpose? There's just different things. So I hope that, my hope is that people will listen to these stories, that atheists will listen to these stories and mm. see how very thoughtful and intelligent people actually came to believe in faith. And, and I hope Christians will listen to these stories so they will understand not only who someone who rejects God is and why they might reject him, but why they may also be influenced to turn and, and perhaps reconsider God. What, what have some of the feedback been from, from non-Christians? What have they made of the, of the stories that you've You've kind of revealed. Yeah, I, I really haven't gotten very much feedback from from non Christians. Hmm. 
Well, that'd be a good one. We'll have to... I would welcome yeah. it, though. I would totally welcome that. That'd be good. Oh, we'll keep pushing your, your podcast on, on our different feeds where we can um, and try and try and get some feedback for you. And just just in Briley, you've, you've been on the Unbelievable show, so I'm sure he, he gets quite a lot of uh, atheists, so maybe they'll uh, check out your podcast after seeing your interview with him. Um, just saying there's a, a few few questions from uh, another friend of the channel. The programmer has got uh, a few questions for us, um, and they, they might kind of uh, be a bit of a, a mix here that they might go beyond your purview, but feel free to uh, tell us. Uh, so there's this one. Uh, so just from, from your experience then, you, you've shared a few of them, uh, a few reasons for, for leaving Christianity, mm. but were there any ones that really stood out um to you is, is something that we can sort of learn from yeah i think i think when i think about those who left christianity um and one is that i mentioned before that that it just seemed like it was it was you know it was a waste of time there was mm. there was nothing there for them that they could see you know it was just going through the motions there was it was just a ritual and, and, a, and an obligation and nothing more so the way that that was presented there, uh, as one person said, it's, it's not like I really left it because I never really embraced it to begin with. I just kind of went through the motions. Um, for another person, it was the ugliness of legalism. Yeah. Um, it, uh, one young lady, uh, her parents became Christians when she was a teenager and they, they really even, uh, Goodness, it's, it's hard. They used the Bible to punish her, you know. To, yeah. uh, it, it was it was awful. I mean, she could not wait to leave. And her story was interesting because she said she found beauty and goodness in Eastern Eastern religions, but not substance. Hmm. Um, she ended up finding the goodness of Christianity through someone who really loved and invested in her, and then showed her. Uh, the substance of Christianity to support it. And now she ministers to Muslims. Um, well. I know. But the, but the other reason why someone left Christianity, um, again, I, I would consider, well, two more reasons. Uh, hmm. I had just a handful that I would consider were, had really embraced Christianity before they left it. One, she, she had, she was raised Catholic, loved Jesus, all of that, but she came to a place where she could not reconcile science and religion. And she wanted to be a, a, a physician, and she was convinced that evolution was true, and she could not reconcile that with her faith. Hmm. And so she left. There was another, another person who left. He uh, was in a very strong, probably the more, the strongest, I guess, Protestant form of Christian faith, a more evangelical, probably the only one that really was in my study prior to leaving and and uh, very invested in their church. Uh, the father was a deacon, taught Bible, you know, studies and all of that. And then he ended up having an affair and abandoned his family. And so he felt rejected by his father. And, and of course, it invalidated his faith as well. Hmm. So... Uh, that was a very, very personal reason why he left. Yeah, that's something. I think just that also shows how complex it can be, and we we shouldn't lump all ex Christians under one banner or people who left the church. And uh, oftentimes, 
well, I think I think we can all, potentially all be guilty of it. There's that that one preach that talks about non-believers as one lump group <laughs> group over there, and all scientists or all this or that believe this, yeah. and and uh, we instantly exclude a whole section of of society under one banner. And uh, I think just the, the once you start to recognise the complexity of life and the amount of suffering people go through it should soften your heart <laughs> at least a little bit to to hear people's story um before you jump in to to accuse them of, of not really engaging in christianity or whatever that might be yeah I, um, I think i think that um like um paul muehlhoff said it this way that you know beliefs are wrapped up in a story a story of how they got there and why they believe what they believe and so and a, a guy in my study said you know, we often treat people as a, a set of arguments to be refuted instead mm. of a human being who's trying to understand their own world and worldview just like we are. So I think it's it's really, really important that the first thing we do, as Francis Schaeffer says, you know, if I have an hour to spend with someone, he said, I will spend the first 55 minutes listening to someone and then I'll spend the last five minutes talking with them. Um, uh, and give you know about the gospel or they're answering their questions or whatever but it's there's this sensibility that that you know we want to just jump in and tell them you know what's true or you should believe this or or whatever it is and instead of really sitting back and understanding it's kind of like i i guess you could say oftentimes atheists will come out front with all these rational reasons not to believe mm-hmm. but you kind of have to pull back the curtain and you have to sit down and and really listen to their story. You know, why, you know, tell me about your life. Tell me about your upbringing, your experience. What are your perceptions? You know, what? why do you believe this and that? And uh, what experiences have you had? And um, really sit and listen. I think listening is a lost part of the apologetic <laughs> world. Because like you said, I mean, we're, we're, we're not just dealing with arguments. We're, we're talking to people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think RCIM is very good about this, really looking at the question behind the question, you know, looking at the mm-hmm. question behind the question, really yeah. looking more deeply at the person and why they're struggling. There's a one of the guys in my study also talked about, you know, that you have to really look at the objection. What, what you know, it'd be almost ridiculous to give them all these reasons, you know, they should believe in God when their objections, something, you know, completely Mm -hmm. different than, I mean, it has nothing to do with what you're trying to tell them is true. Um, It's like going to the doctor and you have a problem, you know, a headache and they start treating your foot. Well, (laughs) what good is that? You know, it's, Mm -hmm. um, I used to work at the hospital on the first line. I used to spend an hour with somebody in my line of work at the hospital just listening, taking a, taking in a case history, figuring it out, listening to them, putting the pieces together, trying to figure out a good uh, approach to their treatment. Um, and and again, we we need to step back and and really embrace that part of our um, apologetics um, enterprise. Really, listening is the first thing because right. listening is also loving. It's also valuing. It's also um, as Mike said, uh, the first guy I interviewed, you know, they gave me the respect that I want, you know, and, and valued me. So I'm willing to value them and yeah. listen to them. So 
it's a very, very, very basic thing that's oftentimes overlooked. Wasn't um, it? Was it Randy Newman who wrote the book? Was it Questioning Evangelism? Yes. I've always thought I should write a very short book called Listening Evangelism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's interesting you say that. Our, our last interviewee, uh, Rebecca Davis, has actually got a part of her book is Listening Evangelism, and, and it's very much a key part of um yeah not not jumping the gun to answer questions that have been asked and uh yes. not, not overloading people with information they don't don't yeah. actually need yes. um is to, sort of talking about the relational aspect of uh evangelism there's kind of a segue it's kind of linked i guess i don't know i'm trying to work how <laughs> maybe it's just a brand new question uh as many of the interviews in the study uh, seem to have been strongly atheistic. Did a lot of them uh, report losing a lot of friends, relationships after converting? And I'm, I don't know if uh, Craig meant this, but um, it, either direction would be interesting. Did Was there any sort of reports of as people became Christians, did they lose friends? And then maybe the other way, if they went into atheism, did they lose connection with, with Christians as well? Uh, I think in, uh, the last part first, in terms of moving into atheism, the, the average age of, of declared atheism or identification as an atheist was 15. And um, I think it was, I, I, don't, I don't recall a lot of alienation, you know, that was going on in terms of, it seemed like they just embraced it. Um, a lot of them were in a culture that, you know, it just was. It, it didn't seem. It didn't seem that that people lost many friends moving into atheism. But I will say the opposite was true. Um, I like the young man who I talked about earlier who listened to debates and things um, and was really looking, moving more intellectually, uh, with and independently. He he would say even if he watched a debate. Um, that he would be ostracized and ridiculed, much less become a Christian. So he knew um, it was really hard for him because that was his world. It was his social group. It was his place of belonging. And um, it, it was it's extremely difficult. Um, some had more gradual, you know, leaving of, of atheism. Some, some were more embedded in uh, a, I guess a sociocultural community of atheists and some were just more independent, you know, and kind of went about the world and had their own private beliefs. So it wasn't as if they were, uh, but at the end of the day, yeah, for some it was, for some it was not a problem. You know, again, we're all different. Hmm. So it's just a follow up on and just to clear up on the question uh, when, he became a Christian, a friend, a lot of disconnect with yeah. friends. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, naturally if, if you're, if you're, if your social cultural group it, are atheists and you reject that on some level, yeah, that's, that's really difficult. And I'm sure that it happens a lot. It, it certainly did happen with some in my study. Yeah. If your friends tend to be grouped around common interests. So if you yeah. if you're an atheist, you know, there's there's atheists and there's atheists, you know, there's mm -hmm. just people who nominally don't believe in God with no 
you know, as I said, a sort of inherited belief. Whereas you've got capital A atheists who, you know, are part of online communities and right. you know, maybe go to talks and things like that. And I guess if 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 your um, you know if your friendship group is 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 more orientated towards uh, that, you're much more likely to become disconnected with them once you no longer have that shared interest mm. in, in atheism. In, in um, you know, and even my own, um, I, I think this even from my own sort of experience, even if like your friends are, are atheists, it's the fact once you become a Christian, you have you know a lot of the things that you shared that you did together, you no longer, you're uncomfortable with doing as a Christian. So if you were like taking yeah. drugs or going out drinking all the time and, 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 you know, clubs and you don't want to do that anymore. Well, that, that thing that you had a shared interest in, you no longer engage with it. It's not like because you became a, because you were a Christian that they don't want to, mm. well, some people might not necessarily hang around, but it's just that that shared interest gets that, that the thing that was connecting you is broken. And so you just, you know, you drift apart. Um, I think in 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 many in many cases. Mm. Um, but also, you know, some people just uh, because of prejudice don't want to be friends with you if you become a Christian. <laughs> Especially when you first become a Christian, you you tend to be um, quite outspoken, uh, and and it's the point and when you're most uninformed as well. At least like I, I will, you know, you're like in a way you're informed about certain things, but like. You know, I'd never read the, you know, I didn't know that much about the Bible. I can't, um, you know, um, and so, you know, people don't want to be around that energy. <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of your friends don't, a lot of love. Yeah, they don't, they don't want to be around that love and energy, you know. Uh, so um, that, that often has the effect of, of, you know, people don't answer their phone anymore or return your messages. So, yeah. Mm. Cool. There's quite a lot. There's there's another question here. I, I don't know how much your your study went into it, um, but there's there a question just in terms of rates. Did you did you look into the rates of conversion from atheism to Christianity at all in in preparation of the study, or Christianity to atheism, or the 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 then like the numbers, the statistical numbers of yeah. uh, conversions. Uh, one of the reasons why I investigated atheist conversion is because there's extremely little in the literature about it. Um, there had been, as far as I could see, there were some um, studies done in the East, in China, um, of moving of atheists moving into Christianity. Of course, that's a very, very different place than in the West. Hmm. Um, and there had actually been no study that I had seen. And there was there there was a study that was done while I was conducting my research and writing my dissertation that looked at thematically, kind of similarly to me, uh, looking at narratives online uh, to see what the particular motives for movement from one to the other were. But no, there's no statistical data on that. Um, that would be a good study. Whoever's mm -hmm. asking the question, yeah, uh, yeah. because it, it feels like a minority, but I can tell you that um, I've been amazed at the number of former atheists that are out there that have converted to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, if anybody wants to come on my podcast and tell their story, I'll just tag uh, the friend. You're more than welcome to do that, but I don't have hard numbers. Um, even, of course, with my study, it's just a sample. 
So um, it, it's a little bit hard to find, hmm. but maybe someone will look. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Well, uh, we've got Craig, uh, 136 Apologetics, and I also tagged someone else I know uh, has come to Christianity. He was one of those who investigated and spent online loads of time online trying to disprove it and uh i'll tag him on twitter so you should be able to see his name's chris and uh yeah i've just noticed that we're at the the hour and a half mark which we we said we're sort of aiming towards um dan do you have any sort of final questions before we go to our last question that we usually ask our guests which is uh top books or podcasts or people we should be listening to um while you're thinking of that dan is there anything else that you wanted to you're on mute, by the way. Hold on. There you, there you go. Oh, I can't unmute you for some reason. There, there we go. go. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, no, I'm just looking forward to to reading your your thesis. Actually, I think it'll be. I, I managed to. I tracked it down earlier, um, and so um, it's uh, it was very long. I saw it was over 500 pages. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so uh, so I'm looking forward to getting through that. I've I've saved it, and so I'm I'm going to spend um, you know I'll find some time over the next couple of weeks to to make my make my way through that because I'll be really interested. Having been some one of the people you interviewed through it, uh, it'll be interesting to to have a to have have a look through it. And um, yeah, no, I'm looking looking forward to it. But no, I don't I don't have any questions. But really really interesting listening to. I love hearing the stories, and and it and it's so obvious how um, you know how passionate you are about the topic and and uh you know is uh and uh, i'm like like you like you said you know of how encouraging it is to to read those accounts mm-hmm. um and and like you said are you, i'm sure we've spoken previously about you um the ter- potentially turning this into a book or is this something that you're yes yeah, so actually i've uh, completed the manuscript for the academic um the academic version of this book um, right. Publishing process. I'm learning. It, it, it takes quite a long time. Yeah. I've also written the stories um, because I thought that that would be helpful to have just accumulation of stories, uh, different kinds of reasons why you know grouped in different reasons why people reject God. Hmm. Uh, I'm having a hard time finding a publisher for that. That's really um, interesting. I know. I thought that that would be the easiest. Oh, you should drop, drop, drop me a message. I've got I've got some friends in in, in publishing and stuff. I would be uh, happy to chat that through. Yeah, that'd be that'll be yeah, a really yeah. interesting one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could, we could yeah, find someone. I, I could definitely, I definitely help find someone for you. Okay, I'll definitely follow you, follow up with you on that. Yeah, um, I'd read it. <laughs> we'll push it once it's published. No, that sounds great. Uh, where where might someone? So is that um, what Dan was just saying about how he's going to read 500 pages? Is that available at all? Do you have to be an academic or link to people to? I'm wondering if my dissertation is online and available. I'm not really sure, to be honest. It it is. I I found it on the, um, yeah, I can, I can find a a, a link I can put, I can put up. Okay, great. Cool. So we'll we'll try and put that into uh, the description as well. So anyone who's interested in, in that, um there's been so so much uh it's been great to to chat to you so w- what would in the lead up to this uh or anyone that's particularly you found helpful in your own walk um who should we be listening to or reading or and our last guest told us about some um some songs <laughs> some musicians that we we can listen to so anything that's kind of helps your faith and um yeah as many as you like top top three or four or something like that well, in terms of 
uh, podcasts, I, I always listen to Unbelievable because I learned some, not just the content, but how to engage in a, in a winsome way, you know, how to listen and how to understand and how to respond, even disagree um, in a way that's not offensive, I guess. For most of the, <laughs> most of the conversations aren't too heated. Some, some get a little bit. But, uh, but I think I, that, that's a constant for me is the Unbelievable podcast. Um, I'm constantly trying to keep aware of, of culture and how Christians are perceived in culture. Um, there are quite a number of podcasts that I listen for that, but Breakpoint through the Colson Fellows, I've listened to Breakpoint. I love um, Cultural Matters or um, Cultural Matters, Mark Sayers, uh, to help me understand how Christians are perceived in culture. And Is that this present moment? And no. Now, uh, oh, goodness. I, I should have been prepared for this. This this cultural moment? Is, that, is it moment? Yeah, yes, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes, that, that was, it's one. really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, I'm so visual. I know it by sight, but I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I did not call it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Of course, I, I always like to get a sense of, um, again, looking at apologetics from a more holistic perspective. I think Paul Gould's book on cultural apologetics helps you understand um, how can how we as as Christians can look beyond? You know, of course, I think as Holly Ardway say, you know, belief is rational, but it's more than rational. You know, there should be we want to make Christianity plausible and attractive. Um, that it, it's not just rational, and so um, I think we have an impetus to do that. Paul Gould's Paul Gould's cultural apologetics taps into that. I haven't come across that yet. I have to look that one up. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually reading a new book right now that I'm being inspired by. It's by Carl Truman, and it's mm. something to do with the modern self. I can't even tell you the exact so, name. I've seen that, that name go around the internet recently as well. I have to look that one up as yeah. well. I think because we as Christians um, are are moving in a place where, not that rationality and reason doesn't matter, but sometimes, you know, the inner self and our, the feelings, you know, become prominent in terms of um, how someone or some sees something as true and that it matters to them. And so I'm um, trying to, to understand more of, of uh, who, who that person is, how they're thinking, how they're perceiving reality, you know, um, Greg Gansel has a book called Our Deepest Desires. Again, it's kind of pre-evangelistic, and it looks at how we can connect with others on more than just rationality, um, you know, things of meaning and purpose, value, beauty, freedom, um, things that, that, again, make Christianity attractive and more than just in the, at the level of the mind, but also at the level of our human experience. So that's kind of where I am now. Sounds good. Sounds like a lot of stuff that um, we've been discussing on our channel and probably hits the mark for some of the stuff that I'm doing. The sound, that last one sounded a bit like Sam Chan's uh, evangelism. Yeah, there wasn't yeah. an acceptable world. Yeah. yeah that's also good. I should have recommended that. That's all right. Yeah. yeah. Big fans of that one. 
yeah. have to um we'll have to get you back on another time because there's, there's so much more to explore in this because yeah. i just made me think about um you read paul the psychologist paul witz's book uh yeah. the faith faith of the fatherless yes it'd be, yeah. it'd yeah. be interesting to to you know um, <laughs> to about that yeah, and your own do. sort of stories Yes, um, and there's a there's actually a young man who's doing some research on that right now. Who's connected? Who's contacting me and and uh, is about to give me some results of some of the research he's done based on Vitz's theory. Oh so, wow! Yeah, because there's no yeah that would be really interesting because obviously yeah. a lot of the the uh, examples he's used are quite dated and, and whether that's still true can you right. know in the contemporary well, world would be really interesting. Yeah, I, I will just since you brought it up, I will say that those who Part of part of the survey was, um, you know, did you move towards atheism or away from Christianity because of a troubled relationship with your father and or your mother? And 28 percent of those in my study, which, you know, nearly one third or a quarter, I guess, expressed that they moved towards atheism because of a troubled relationship with their father. Oh. So. I think, you know, those theories are good. I think we as Christians have a tendency to say, oh, okay, everybody who's an atheist, you know, they had a bad relationship with their dad. You yeah. know, it's easy to broad brush and generalize when we cannot do that. It's true for some, but not for all. Just like the, the whole, um, who is it, James Spiegel, who wrote a book, yeah, uh, The Making of an Atheist. And it had everything to do with, you know, moral autonomy and all of that <laughs> That's true for some. You know, I think in, in my study, it showed 46%, 48%, 42%. You know, I asked things in different ways. But, you know, less than half, that was true for them, that they were looking for some kind of moral freedom, but certainly not for all. You know, yeah. we, we have to be very careful about these theories and how we apply them to everyone. And just, you know, we wouldn't want that done to us. No. And, and we, we can't do that to other people either. We we're we're far too complex and you know as someone like yourself knows you know you have to consider other variables you know and i think um as human beings we always want we want simplistic answers to complex questions and i think ascribing atheism you know is to a bad relationship with your father kind of accounting for everything is one of those temptations to uh explain things away um you know in a simplistic way rather than considering all the other you know confounding factors and things like that yeah. but um no it's been it's been a, a, a real treat listening to you and um we're um i'm sure a lot of people will um will really enjoy um you know reading your your accounts and and the books when they finally come out especially the more popular one i think will be yeah. I, I can imagine i can imagine that being a really a really interesting and, and, and popular book so yes me um, too i can't understand why the publishers don't <laughs> Don't worry, we're going to fix this. We're going to fix this. Okay. Don't, don't be worrying. Don't you oh, worry. that would be great, Dan. That would be fantastic. So awesome. Well, thanks, Jana, for joining us. Uh, I'll close off the stream. But um, any final things that you would like to say? <laughs> no, just thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to to come and and talk about my research. It's it's great to be with people who actually are curious and have questions about it. Just kind of like what you're saying, Dan. You know, there are those few who, who actually like to listen and talk about ideas and, and research and, and things like this. So you're my people. So thank you so much for, for letting me come on and, and talk. And I hope that in some ways it's been helpful for someone who's listening. And if anybody has anything they want to tell me, uh, you know, 
they're interested, they have a thought, they have a criticism, something they want me to consider or whatever, um, please, please connect with me. If you have a story you want to tell, I'm open. So Awesome. Yeah. It's our pleasure. There's uh, been at least a couple in the stream that I'm sure will be in touch for uh, with their stories. So once again, just thank you. I'll close off the stream in a moment just to say we've got another scheduled stream next Thursday with Anne Wilton, who uh, works with True Freedom Trust. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Christianity and sexuality uh, with her, which will be a, a new topic for us. I don't think we've talked about that yet uh, in two too much uh so that'll be interesting how do we as christians talk about that how do we support people with same-sex attraction how do we uh bring a biblical view on that uh, i'm sure that'll be all part of the conversation so feel free to join in it'll be about eight o'clock next thursday if all goes well and um do like subscribe share go visit uh the side b podcast and um subscribe to that and uh, thanks all for those who've commented. If uh, just to go through a few of these people on the list, uh, go and find their YouTube channels 136 Apologetics, Chris Roussel, uh, Dragona Daenerys. Uh, that's a good, good name there, actually. A Game of Thrones fan. And uh, yeah, thanks all for watching. Programmer Finding Truth. And uh, I think London Theist is in there somewhere. Thank you all. And uh, God bless. Have a good night. See you later. for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you like what you hear please do give us a subscribe on youtube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback get in touch let us know what you think if you really enjoyed the content and want to support it find us on patreon.com